Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Daily Objective. With me today, Mark Pellegrino. Hi, Mark. Hey, man. We're, we're going to try to stay calm and relaxed. My neighbor is playing piano. There's this soothing sound because the topic is not uh, one which is very pleasant. So BBC Radio 4 did what they call a drama called Talk to Me, Ayn Rand. So what this is, is something like a dramatization of some interviews with people who were inside the life, uh, in the inner circle, let's say, of Ayn Rand. And why should we bother? Because the misrepresentation of Rand's is so staggering that, as I usually say in these cases, if this was an essay, let's say in a A-level sociology essay, that wouldn't pass. So let's go step by step and see what are the misrepresentations. And from my side, I won't even get to the actual play. We will focus, I will focus on the description that they give to the play. So they start. Ayn Rand, comma, darling of the alt-right and allegedly President Trump's favorite writer. Now, already here, first pause. So Ayn Rand apparently is a darling of the alt-right. Now, many questions here. First of all, what do these people mean by the alt-right? The alt-right was a term that was thrown a lot as a smear, but actually there is an alt-right movement. So to be fair, we're going to see if Rand is indeed the darling of the actual alt-right, but also to cover both scenarios, if Ayn Rand is the darling of the people that the authors, the writers, which by the way, I'm not even, I don't even know their names. I didn't, I don't think it's, it hasn't got to do with who they are. We are, we are critiquing their ideas, who they might think that the alt-right is. Because in mainstream circles, usually what happens is anyone who is slightly on the right of Mitt Romney is considered alt-right. So who is the alt-right? Alt-right is people, for example, like Richard Spencer, the person who made the alt-right big. What is Richard Spencer's relationship to the ideas close to the ideas of, of Ayn Rand? So according to Spencer, who for the record for the last two, three years ha is telling everywhere how he's gonna vote Democrat, he's in favor of uh, an ethnostate. And he says that freedom a country base of freedom is just another place where you can go shopping. So this is how Spencer sees the ideas about individual agency and the ideas of freedom. So the alt-right is for collectivism, Ayn Rand is for individualism. The alt-right believes that our race and our environment create who we are. Ayn Rand believes that we have free will and we, are, we, are the, we, we build our own soul and our own character. The alt-right are nationalists and overtly quite often racist, Ayn Rand has perhaps written the, the best rebuttal of racism. You want to go to particular topics. Many in the alt-right think that the civil war was a mistake. The Ayn Rand thought and objectives others think that Lincoln and Sherman are heroes. You want to go to specific policy issues. For example, the alt-right, they are... Anyway, I, I, think, I think people get the point. But what about someone might say about other people who maybe are loosely related to the alt-right? Let's take, for example, Stephen Bannon, who is considered the biggest villain. So is Bannon really in love with Ayn Rand? Let's see what Bannon actually said in a rare occasions that he has mentioned Ayn Rand. So Bannon says, there are two kinds of capitalism. 
There's the capitalism that supports the Judeo-Christian morality and the values of hardworking people. That's good, thumbs up. But then he says, there is also this other, the Ayn Rand, this is a quote, the Ayn Rand or, or the objectivist school of libertarian capitalism. And Bade says, this is the wrong type of capitalism. And Steve Bannon says that for any, uh, he says that for any, uh, <clears throat> that distribution of wealth and to make sure that we, pro that we promote the right values and all that stuff, quote, should be at the heart of, of every Christian that is a capitalist. So not only Ayn Rand is not the darling of the alt-right, Ayn Rand is despised by the alt-right. And actually, I managed to find an article by another alt-right. Because again, to be fair, I checked everything that anyone in the alt-right had said about Ayn Rand. And there is an article in the Countercurrents, which is an alt-right website that says, the title is, uh, the actual alt-right objectivist Zen, or alternative title, if you meet Ayn Rand on the road, kill her. Now, this is supposedly the darling of the alt-right. Mark. Yes, uh, let, me, let me move the barometer even further left and just say mainstream conservatives. Um, at best, you have a few mainstream conservatives who, who, uh, who uh, allude to her economic work as being somewhat worthwhile, but the overwhelming majority of intellectuals in the conservative movement, the mainstream conservative movement, despise Ayn Rand, uh, Ben Shapiro famously saying, Ayn Rand is garbage. Uh, Dennis Prager, who I think is an intellectual thought leader in the conservative mainstream, won't even debate any, an objectivist with respect to her ethics and categorically denies uh, her ethics. Um, uh, William F. Buckley famously was, was an enemy of hers. And I can't think of, think of a single columnist from Cal Thomas to even uh, Thomas Sowell who would give her, uh, her props as a significant moral philosopher or even as a spokesperson for capitalism in many cases. And now we've moved the barometer to what you would consider centrist and embody most people on the conservative right. So she's no darling of the right at all. So it's, but the thing is, I think it's a nine run quote, a mistake of that magnitude cannot be an honest mistake. Anyway, yes, let's, go to yes. the, let's go to the next point. Allegedly, President Trump's favorite writer. So I tried to, 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 to trace back where this comes from. And here's what I found. In one interview, Trump, who, you know, he's not an avid reader, apparently, according to from what I saw in that interview, he was asked to, make, to mention an inspiring book. He mentioned The Fountainhead. Now, I'm not even sure if he, under, if he remembered the book 100% because he said something like, oh, yeah, isn't this like the businessman and and it's mostly the the journalist who's telling you hey, it's about this and Trump's like oh yeah 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 that, that, that's it that's it now from that we get the idea that she's allegedly president trump's favorite writer now again this is a misrepresentation at a level which is absolutely impossible by the way here's a question if saddam hussein for example would say that would would do would quote marx when you do a drama about Marx, would you say the favorite author of every dictator on planet Earth? Would you? Okay, okay, that would be an exaggeration, anyway. But would you say, okay, let's let's be frank, let's be precise. Favorite author of thirty-eight percent of dictators on Earth. Would they say that about Marx? They'd never say that. 
Anyway, any comment but, on the hey, Trump thing? Well, look, I think I think it's as usual. The left can smear very well, and they do it on multiple levels. That's an extremely complex smear, because what you do is uh, you you take advantage of something that everybody knows about Trump. He's relatively illiterate, not very well read, but his favorite book. His favorite author is Ayn Rand. So at, at one at one moment you get to you you smear Rand by association with an illiterate moron, and and uh, so it's a piece of brilliance. The left the left really knows how to club people over the head and and uh, and create these webs of guilt by association. Next point. Ayn Rand is the inspiration behind the slogan "Greed is good." <laughs> Yeah, uh, I did some research. I couldn't find where this comes from. By the way, could these people define greed? Because they, there is one, there is one time that greed is mentioned in Atlas Rugged when it's not mentioned sarcastic, like you know the typical villain saying, "Oh, everyone else is greedy, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the benevolent, non-greedy person who's gonna destroy your people's lives." You and know, the only know. time it's mentioned, it's during a sexual act, an act of exaltation. And that's what I'm going, not going to mention who is having sex with whom, because it's a massive spoiler. But that is mentioned that she felt this, almost this greed of, uh, of things. And also, there's this utop utopia of greed title. But again, if we, go, if we go deeper on what this title of what particular chapter means, it's going to be massive spoilers. But I don't think that they went that deep when they say that she's behind the slogan, greed is good. They've probably watched the Wall Street film, the Gordon Gecko lines, like, oh, who did it come from? Ayn Rand. By the way, we should do, we did a whole episode on why Gordon Gecko is not an objective hero. And we're going to do also another episode about the other character in Wall Street, uh, uh, the guy who don't remember his name, Charlie Sim. Comments on greed is good. Well, it feels like a sort of moral intrinsicism, you know, when you say, a certain type of feeling is bad, qua the feeling itself, uh, when it really depends on what you're greedy for and how you go about satisfying that greed. I, did, I do think I remember uh, Leonard Peikoff on his radio show in the early 90s talking about greed in a good respect from the same, almost the same perspective as you did about being greedy for the love, for, for you know, the, the love with your, with your partner or significant other or greedy for the air that you're breathing. You know, there, you know, there, there are contexts in which greed can be actually a very uh, uh, appropriate feeling to have. So uh, decontextualizing like that and, and, and framing it in the way uh, modern moralists do is it's definitely misleading. Yeah, the, the, the figure that comes to my mind is Michael Phelps. After his 18th Olympic medal, he's still hungry to go further, to go higher, to achieve more. Now, no one would say this is great, but then they would say, they would show you, for example, a, a picture with Floyd Mayweather's eight cars. They say, ah, he's greedy. So again, out of context, not, not defining the term and just saying, yeah, the inspiration behind this. But, is but still, the, the, the fact that human needs are insatiable um, is a great thing. It presses us forward and it's, it's the engine of progress. Then, society and altruism are evil. <laughs> right, where to begin? Probably she's confused, the authors are confused with this 
alleged Thatcher thing that there is no society. Actually, Thatcher said this, but it meant something completely different. She basically said, when someone is in need, is in need, it's individual people who help. It's not quote society. But again, the smears of the left completely misquoted Thatcher on that. So I'm very curious, where, where does Ayn Rand say that society is evil? Because again, we see in her novels, for example, people gaining massive value from their friends, risking their lives for their friends. Uh, I could say more, but it's gonna be a huge spoiler for Alda Shrugged, but so I won't. Now, if society, it means the right of other people on your life, then yeah, Rand says no. In this way, we are contractual animals. We, 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 we should associate with people who want to associate with us and we want to associate with them. And you'd expect that this is the basis of every civilized society because what's the alternative to associate with people, to force people to associate with us? Anyway, so yeah, any comment on uh, the society? And by the way, she goes out of her way. I think it's on the essay... Uh, on, uh, on national interest or something like that, which he says, we are not lone wolves. This, soci this society lone wolf dilemma is a false dilemma. We are contractual animals. We're better off when we're dealing with other rational, good people on equal terms. I think, I think Rand goes to great lengths to describe what the benefits of society are. And, and when she calls society an abstraction, it's not it's not a denigration of society. It's to say that society is just a collection of individuals and we measure it by the standard of an individual. But I think it's important to note that because you mentioned altruism, but we didn't get too, too far into that. Um, the, 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 the framework, the reference framework that the play uses for altruism is helping others. So they, and so they align Rand with an anti-helping others mentality. They don't define altruism the way objectivists do, which is sacrifice to the other, which is a very different, different phenomenon than helping someone. So my dear friends who wrote this, Ayn Rand is against helping others. Then why is it that in the Fountainhead towards the end, a woman is risking her health and her freedom to help the man she loves. I can't say details because it's, again, spoiler. Why is it in Atlas Shrugged that at the end, we see a group of friends saying to their friend is captured by the powers to be, and they manage to liberate him, risking their lives. And they tell him, if we didn't manage to liberate you using our mind, we were about to attack, to, to go against basically the army to, to take you from the hands of these people. And yet this is not sacrifice. Yeah, but what, what, yeah. I'm sorry, but even more, what, what, what does Howard Rourke do throughout the novel with, with Peter Keating? Peter Keating is his nemesis, his enemy, but he helps him the entire time. He, inf he, he advises his designs, he helps him draw, he helps him conceptualize. Uh, what, what is Dagny Taggart's moral dilemma through the entire novel of Atlas Shrugged? It is surviving, it's, it's bringing light uh, and reason to the world. She's convinced that the world will accept it and she continues to fight for it the entire time. And, and at some point, by the way, it becomes sacrifice for her and she, she understands Right, that. yes, indeed. So that's, that's the false dichotomy here that altruism means being a good person. No, the way Rand uses the term is self-sacrifice, that some should sacrifice to others. 
And that that's the metric for, for determining what's good or evil. Exactly. Yeah. And then, Rand says blah, blah, that the state should not exist. Now, I know people <laughs> that we are all very busy and who has time to Google, but it would take <clears> something <throat> like eight seconds to Google, is Rand an anarchist? And you would come with articles upon articles upon articles where Rand is very ruthless towards anarchists, intellectually ruthless towards him. They would find Peter Schwartz's article against libertarianism as anarchism. But again, Googling takes too much time. We'll just say Rand was against the state. And by the way, I, I don't even say that they should go and read the nature of government because who has the time to read a 15 pages pamphlet? But even a Googling <laughs> here would, would, uh, would sort things out. So could this mistake again be, be an innocent mistake? No, 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 um, definitely not. But if you can't fight somebody on their own merits, I say make up a narrative, create a straw man and then fight that straw man. That's what they seem to be doing. Right. Then I... Oh, I by the, the way, just, just, just to jump on that last point, you know, libertarians all the time jump on objectivists as statists. If, they, if all they'd have to do is go on any... Uh, internet argument between uh, objectivists and libertarians, and they'll see that libertarians call us statists all the time. So three years ago to this day, we had a conference in Thessaloniki in Greece, and there was an anarchist who, who was so furious with us, who left the room bumped, bumping the door and shouting abuses that, I can't say the exact words, that they're because YouTube is going to take us down. But basically, he was saying we are a particular part of the body, bloody leftists. So yeah, in the eyes of the in the eyes of of, of the of the libertarian anarchists, we are the left. Anyway, then I started the introduction to 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 the drama, which had part of an interview with someone who are commenting on Rand, and they said that the extreme vision that Ron held the extreme vision that self selfishness should rule the world. Now, for the record, Ayn Rand doesn't want anyone to rule the world. Again, if you take the unimaginable step of reading Atlas Shrugged, you will see at the end of Atlas Shrugged, the hero being put on the torture chamber to be forced to rule. And he says, no, I don't want to rule and it's impossible to rule good people. So maybe they mean that selfishness is the moral ideal, which is true, but the way Rand understands selfishness, I'm sure they would make a caricature out of it that selfishness is not caring about other people and causing pain to other people whenever it suits your agenda. That's true. That's the way they do define it. They define it. They, they don't take Rand at her definition. They apply theirs to hers. And the, the, the part that really, really, really pissed me off, really pissed me off because it's so unjust. So they said that this selfness is the foundation for cruelty. And then they say, Ayn Rand shows disinterest to cruelty and she does not care about suffering. Now, where do I begin? Do I begin with that scene? from uh, the Fountainhead, when Howard Rourke visits Mallory 
and Mallory burst into crying because of the state of the world and Howard Rourke is there a rock beside him. So this is not caring for suffering according to the critics. Or should I go to Atlas Shrugged to part three where we see the scene where the wet nurse, Tony is dying and Hank Reard is trying to save his life. And we, we have this quote, quote, Reardon rose to his feet by a long, cautious effort. He saw the tortured spasm of the boy's features as he settled him slowly against his chest, like a baby held tight in his arms. But the spasm twisted into another echo. And, and then he's, he's trying to encourage him, cling to life. Now notice, Reardon is trying to help someone who is unjustly hurt, who he's not even a friend of his. It's someone who he just started to appreciate. And then later, the boy's head dropped and Reardon kissed his forehead. It was like a father's recognition granted to a son's battle. Now, this is one of the most difficult scenes to, to, to read in Atlas Rag. The, 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 the struggle of reading to try to keep the wet nurse alive. Now, an author that envisioned and, and put into paper this scene, according to these people, is, how did they put it, disinterested to cruelty and uh, does not care about suffering. Well, let's not let's not also forget the the tremendous love and compassion that Rourke shows for Cameron as he's suffering as well, his mentor. Um, but I think I, look, I think there has to be a distinction that's made that isn't made in the in the minds of the makers of this novel. It, it's one thing to not care about suffering; it's another thing to not hold suffering as metaphysically important. And those are different types of values. It's a different orientation towards suffering. One holds it as a primary and orients its moral code around it. Another says it's an aspect of life, but life itself is what we have to orient our values around. Um, and certainly that includes the alleviation of suffering, but it's not a primary because life is the primary. And that's a very different orientation. Exactly, and what is a better struggle and fight against suffering than saying, Life is not about suffering, right? Life isn't that beautiful? Isn't that exactly. beautiful? Exactly. Life isn't about suffering, guys. It's about living. It's about joy. It's and suffering happens, right? Because we're we're sentient beings. We feel the knocks uh, that that life offers us. Sometimes overcoming obstacles is hard, but it's overcoming the obstacles that makes life worthwhile. Exactly. Exactly. But again, people who couldn't Google. Ayn Rand and anarchism, we're we probably asking too much. Anyway, then, again mentioned in the... Uh, by the way, for each of these points, which we could make one-hour episodes, these were just things that came to my head without <coughs> any serious, serious research. But again, so you would suppose that at least they would try to read, to read at least the two most famous novels. Anyway, then, reading her work is dangerous, according to one of the producers. So when she tells to her for his for her friends uh, about uh, I'm doing something on Ayn Rand, they're like, oh my God, this is... And in one way, yes, it is dangerous because Ayn Rand is a very dangerous philosopher because actually she's the most dangerous philosopher because she goes against the traditions of centuries, the traditions that tell you that your life is not yours, that you cannot make sense of the world, that you live for the group, 
Now you fill in the blank which group is going to be the class, the race, the nation, the gender, whatever, or an intersection of group or whatever group it is. And she's telling you actually that your happiness is your highest, let's say, aim in life. But in order to do this, you have to find it rationally. It's not whatever whims you have, and it does not, it cannot be achieved by sacrificing yourself to others or others to yourself. Now, what people find cruel on that, I'm really, really curious to find out. Well, I'm, I want to just piggyback on that. Yes, she is the most dangerous philosopher that's ever lived because um, she's the one who can who can take the the moral legs out from under these uh, these authoritarian dictates that have, have basically guided society for centuries. Um, you can't be led and you can't be controlled if you know you're a, a, a human being with a mind of your own and that your happiness matters. And one last point for me today. Uh, then she says that the, someone else comments, yeah, it's frightening. It's, it's frightening that she's taught in A-levels. So in the UK, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's actually, Ayn Rand is taught in A-levels. Now, careful, frightening. And my question is, it's frightening by what standard? If, if, if it's by the standard that education in schools or universities are universities, a left-wing think tank because higher level, and the school, a left-wing religious school or whatever, or then yeah, it's frightening. Some, suddenly you have a different voice. So Peikoff said one something very, I found very inspiring. He says, I'm not asking a balance of one-on-one, -on -one, one objectivist for one leftist. I'm asking something like a balance of 500 to one. Because again, our ideas are so much better that we're going to win. By the way, it reminds me of this super awesome scene at the end of the film 300, where preparing for the battle of the plateaus, the guy says, there are three to one, which for us is a very... It's it's a very good uh, it's a very good uh, <laughs> it's a very good ratio. So the fact that among the hundreds of figures that appear in school, there is one that is quote frightening tells you a lot about uh, tells you a lot about how these people view the world. By the way, uh, just a mention to to the producer Razi, how are we going to end this? Because Razi is not on the call. Just tell us how we should. Uh, otherwise, this show is going to go forever in eternity, although that would be fun, but at some point we need to find a way to, to, to stop it because our producer is offline. Anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I sort of forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I sort of forgot what I was going to say. Oh, so it was about I think, school I think, and... Uh, no, yeah. I, think, I think it is frightening for anybody uh, who thinks power over others is, is good because they see that, that being jeopardized. You can't have power over an independent autonomous human being. It's impossible. So yeah, the, the elites that who, have, who have done the slow march through the institutions and entrenched establishments are, are really, really scared and they should be. Now, uh, we, could, we, could, we could enter discussing the actual play. Probably we're gonna do it another day this week. Now, just as a final thought, my main aim here is not to go against these, uh, these people. My main message here is let's make sure that we don't become like that. 
That's why, for example, I don't like when I see people that are my friends or my intellectual friends throwing slogans or straw manning. So my final message is, yeah, we know they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna tell us about Ayn Rand and smears. Actually, what I'm gonna, what I want is to make sure that we are not like that, that we're better than this. Mark, parting words. And I, yeah, oh. Raz is gonna end it from YouTube, so don't worry, we're not gonna be here in eternity. <laughs> well, I don't mind. You're, you're a good company for eternity. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, uh, I, I, this is a this is a, a a child birthed from the political and intellectual left. And one thing that I've noticed from that section of the establishment is it engages in masturbation fantasies. Uh, and that's what this play is. It's a masturbation fantasy. It has nothing to do with the woman herself. It has nothing to do with her ideas. It doesn't even have anything to do really with the people who are associated with her. It creates a narrative that sticks within it and then masturbates to itself within that world. So, hey, I, so this means stop intellectually masturbating. I'll have to process this analogy, but... <laughs> There's, there's probably something to it. So, and why I'm saying this, because again, I wanted to make this show without listening to the actual thing. So I tried to keep this out of my mind and say, okay, let's say even I've listened, it, let's say it's good, but doesn't matter. Why this distortion? If you have a good, if you did your research and you have a good dramatic product, why all this? Why all these lies that you could fix them with a Googling? And uh, the answer, I will leave the answers to, so we gave you our take. I'm going to leave the rest of the answer to the audience. Now, uh, in half an hour, seven o'clock uh, UK time, we have James Valiant in the Ayn Rand Center meetup. The topic today is creating Christ. It's about the early steps. It's about how Christianity developed as a religion by someone who is an, who is an expert. So I invite people to Check it in Ayn Rand Center's social media and uh, and so on. Mark, we were. What's the term? Uh, enraged, but indignant. What's the what's the term? Indignation. Anyway, let's say just indignation. We are yeah. justly indignant. Let's put it this way. Yes. But here's to, here's to creating uh, good values and not, uh, and not uh, smears like this. So all the best to our viewers and we'll be back soon. Maybe we're gonna come back to this topic. Maybe not, who knows? Anyway, thank you, Mark. Thanks to thank our viewers. You. All the best. Bye-bye. There might be a slight delay because Raz is gonna end it from YouTube, so we're still live and it's gonna be the awkward last five seconds. <laughs> Where we sit here with smiles frozen on our faces. Yes. <laughs> it should be coming to an end soon.